Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. Um, it is Friday, July 8th, and um, I'm your host, Keith Breckis, uh, broadcasting from Eastern Arizona, where I'm working on a campaign uh, for, people, for our listeners who aren't aware of that. Um, and uh, tonight, I'm uh, especially excited to uh, to have our guest on um, because his visit, uh, I guess, couldn't be any more timely given what's the current context of what's going on in the news. But my guest tonight is Rashad Shabazz, who's an associate professor in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. Um, And he's also the author of a recent book called Spatializing Blackness, Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. And of course, um, in light of the uh, different things that happened this week in the news with the police brutality cases and then the uh, uh, shootings in Dallas, uh, it, uh, the timing, uh, I guess, um, this this going to be a more timely interview. And so um, welcome, Rashad. How are you today? Thank you for having me, and I'm happy to be here. Great. Thank you. And, and uh, I guess... Um, by the way, starting, I guess um, it, your book is called Spatializing Blackness, Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. Maybe for our listeners, you could tell us a little bit about what that's, uh, what the book is about and also um, maybe sort of um, contextualize it in, in terms of current events and the Black Lives Matter movement and other things that are going on today and, and how, how um you know, how you, I guess maybe I'd like to hear your perspective on the events of the last week, and and uh, and maybe tying in some of some of what you write about in your book into those events. Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll start with the second part of that question. Uh, the the events, the the events are um, horrific and shocking. The uh, you know the the murders of the the two black men in Louisiana and Minnesota are yet again another reminder of the ever presence of police brutality and the way that black people in particular uh, are subject to police violence in disproportionate ways and the numerous cases that we've seen over the last several years with the advent of technologies and social media that captures them, um, that we've seen these broadcasts over and over of black black people, black women and black men and children being beaten, cuffed, thrown around, and shot and killed by police officers, um, all of them uh, unarmed. You know, Chicago, uh, Ferguson, and, uh, and then most recently, uh, in in Minnesota and um, uh, Louisiana, so this is um, it's it's disturbing. Um, it is frustrating. Um, you know, it definitely produces stress and anger. Uh, so so 
you know, that's that's really, you know, that's how I'm sort of, I'm feeling that I think many other people, particularly black people, are feeling, you know, very fed up um, and, and, you know, we want something done. Um, and I think as a scholar, this also speaks to um, a very, a very specific kind of moment that we're in. You know, we've been seeing the expansion of the prison system and policing and, you know, sort of state punishment industry over the last, now going on into its fifth decade, which has produced, you know, two generations of black people being forced to confront the reality of incarceration, it's devastated communities, it's undermined the financial stability of black communities across the country, it has disappeared people, and it's not produced safety it's it's actually produced more instability uh and and police are 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 central uh in this and so you know in terms of tying the 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 events of the of yesterday and the day before uh and also what happened in Dallas which is also horrific um tying all of these in things into um my book and the research that I do. Um, so the the book is is an examination of of how Black people were geographically organized and how cities were uh, racially organized from the beginning of the Great Black Migration um, during the years of the First World War uh, on the way all the way up until the years after the Second World War. It looks at how um, discourses about about black criminality and black sexuality and the migration of black people up to the cities, up to northern cities, particularly Chicago, uh, during those years between the war. How those how those discourses uh, influenced where they were able to live, the conditions of their living, how it impacted their health, their financial stability, their uh, their sense of gender and, and gender performance and gender identity, right? and, and what were the tools and techniques and tactics that was used to geographically or spatially organize them within the context of the city. And one of the things that the book does is it really shows that without the, without the what, we would, what I would call the spatialization of blackness, which means that the geographic location of black people in specific places um, and the closing off of housing markets to them in other, particularly whiter communities, which, you know, created these black communities. Without the creation of those things, um, mass incarceration that we see in the latter part of the 20th century doesn't happen in the same way because, you know, black communities as a whole, which is where the overwhelming majority of black people in Chicago and around the nation live, are policed, and and those communities tend to be the places that are mined for our state prisons. So you know there's a there's a there's a relationship between those communities and decades of uh, of extensive over policing in those communities. Right, and you know we're seeing um, we're we're seeing in these most recent murders that tension playing itself out with it more and more um, with its with its police stops 
for things like a broken taillight and the the tension between black communities that have historically had um, that have historically faced police brutality and the belief from police that black people represent violence, right? That those things clash and produce uh, premature death for far too many black people, right? And we and we see it over and over and over again. And not only death, but death that is not uh, brought to justice, right? You know, we saw it in Ferguson. We saw it in Baltimore. Uh, we saw it with Laquan McDonald most recently in Chicago. You know, we've been seeing all of these cases where, uh, you know, these officers are not held accountable for ending the, the lives of these, these black people. So the book really tries to look at the creation of black spaces the role of these technologies and tactics and techniques to contain and to organize, and what that has been in terms of the quality of life, stability, incarceration, so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, there's so many, I guess, so many different things to look at in terms of the spatializing of blackness and in, in the way of the sort of actual physical and architectural policing of black lives. Um, I know you focus your study on Chicago um, largely because that's where you grew up and, and therefore have a lot of firsthand knowledge. Um, but um, as far as generalizability, can the experiences of, of black Chicagoans um, apply to uh, blacks in other, other Northern or other U S cities as well? Absolutely. Um, if you look at a map, you know, I want to encourage your uh, listeners to uh, Google uh, race geography and the United States. Uh, and you'll see in all major metropolitan areas where the majority of black people live is in the metropolitan areas all throughout the Midwest, the East, and the South, uh, they are deeply segregated from Philadelphia to Boston to New York City to D.C. to North and South Carolina, Florida, Texas, Illinois, all, all the way to California. You know, black people, the overwhelming majority of black people in the country are segregated, and those methods of segregation were set and put into practice in the early part of the 20th century um, as black people began to leave the South and move to the Northeast, the Midwest, and then after the Second War, World War, when black people from the South moved to places like Los Angeles and Oakland, California, as well as up to Seattle, you know, they were forced into black communities. They were forced into these communities because housing restrictions foreclosed access to whiter, better quality housing. So, so the, so in, in in that context, you know, we see the we see similar patterns of uh, systemic forms of racial segregation in terms of housing and education, and we also see corresponding rates of high incarceration because those communities tend to be um, economically disadvantaged. They have they have um, inferior schools. They don't get the same access to healthy quality foods or health care or even child care. And so with those forms of, of instability in those communities, um, we see, you know, we see forms of street crime and police 
focus on those communities for those for those you know street level crimes. And it must be said that you know um, you know black people are don't produce more crime than uh, than anyone else. You know we don't produce disproportionate forms of crime, particularly when it comes to drug use, right? Which over the last forty years has been the major driver of mass incarceration. But black people are disproportionately policed, arrested, and convicted. Right, that's the major thing, right? It's not disproportionate crime, right? Because whites and other people of color create uh, also have crime, but what we see is disproportionate levels of policing, convict of con- policing, arrest, and conviction, and those things have produced the swelling pop- prison population that we've seen, where we have over two million people in prison, the overwhelming majority of them poor, and over half of them are black. Right, all across the nation, right, from California to New York down to Florida and Texas. So Chicago is not unique in that respect that this that black people were uh, spatialized. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think uh, for our listeners, too, and I, I think you alluded to at the beginning, one thing that struck me that you can look at if you're into geography or looking at maps is uh, – I, I don't remember who did this, but but most of the major cities in the U.S. you can now pull up a dot map, which kind of has different dots for like, um, you know, African Americans, uh, whites, Hispanics, and so on. And and the maps are really stark because you can see, for example, Detroit. You can find Eight Mile Drive because <laughs> it's all black people below the line and white people above it with just a little bit of overlap in a couple places. But for the most part, it's very stark. And the segregation of of black people you could see in Detroit or Cleveland, Milwaukee, Chicago, especially, uh, you know, the upper Midwest, but really all over the country, even even in places, uh, you know, from coast to coast, from Los Angeles to Boston or whatever. But um, starting at the sort of beginning of the black experience in in Chicago historically at the turn of the 20th century in that first wave of the great black migration, um, the mass movement of black people from the Jim Crow South, um, there was that big movement to what was rumored to be a more open and tolerant North. Um, What did uh, black people find when they moved North? Right. So black people began to leave the South en masse around 1916 as the first world war uh, ensued and, uh, white men, white industrial men left the North uh, for for Europe to fight. And uh, industrial labor um, needed workers. And so black people in the South became the targeted group of laborers. So there was a pull factor that so you have, you know, industrial labor pulling black people up to the South, up to the North. And then you had the reality of uh, Jim Crow terrorism, um, and lynchings and economic insecurity pushing black people out of the South, right? So you have these twin forces of, you know, pull factors and push factors, and they begin to come up to Chicago. Uh, and the hope was, you know, like the hope of, of all immigrants, it was the hope of uh, access to institutions. It was the hope of better housing for, uh, for families, better schools for children, and ultimately full citizenship. People left the South where they were not citizens, hoping to be full citizens in the North. And when they got to Chicago, they 
they they were not confronted with the same kind of virulent and violent racism of the South. But what they were confronted with was a different kind of geographic order that that organized the interactions between blacks and whites and other immigrants in the city. And and what they also discovered was that the things that were being said about black people in, in the South in the years after slavery, you know, during slavery, black people were seen as fairly ignorant and docile and in need of of uh, white protection, you know, the whole notion of a white man's burden, you know, that, you know, black people needed to be cared for because they really could not care for themselves, right? That was really pervasive all throughout the South, right? And, and it was the, the, one of the dominant beliefs of, of, slave, of, of slaveholders and many whites in the South. But almost at the moment that emancipation happened and black people could control their labor and their bodies and they could leave these plantations and, uh, and start families on their own, then they went from almost overnight from being seen as, you know, ignorant and docile and, 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 in, and in need of, you know, uh, white protection from themselves to being seen as criminal and sexually perverse and dangerous, right? And so as black people began to leave the South for the North, those discourses followed them, right? And they moved up to Philadelphia. They moved to Boston. They moved to New York. And they moved to Chicago. And so Chicagoans, you know, white Chicagoans, you know, are now seeing these black people, like, arrive on trains and walking around the city. And, you know, as I imagine, is running through the minds of many of today's police officers. Uh, they feared them. They saw them as a threat. They saw them as dangerous. They saw them uh, as, as, as a group that needed to be controlled. And the major way to control them was to limit their physical mobility, and that was done largely through housing restrictions. Black people in the North, particularly in Chicago, faced these things called restrictive covenants. And restrictive covenants were laws that were built into the contract and deed of the home. So it would say things like, you know, no Jews, no Italians, and most specifically, no blacks. And so... So 85% of Chicago's housing market was governed by these racially restrictive covenants that did not allow black people to move in. But there was part of the town that did allow them to move in, and that was this space that was near the downtown, and it became known as the Black Belt. And the overwhelming majority of black people that moved into Chicago in those years between the First and Second World War were forced into uh, the the black belt and effectively creating uh, black space in northern cities like Chicago. Yeah, and then um, one thing to that you point out is um, prior to I guess the establishment of the black belt or, or that becoming um, where blacks had moved up there were basically isolated or where where, where they were concentrated. Authorities prior to that had basically allowed a lot of vice to exist in Chicago, provided that it remained within maybe certain boundaries. But but after the migration into the Black Belt, the predominantly black section of the city on the south side at that time, vice became the vice became the justification to transform that neighborhood into a police state. Um, could you elaborate on that and uh, maybe why that happened and and how that took place? 
Yeah, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century, Chicago had a robust vice district that had all the things that the vice districts have, gambling, prostitution, alcohol, uh, you know, you name it, it was there. Uh, and there was also a part of that vice district was an underground sort of interracial sex scene where people who wanted to dance and drink and mingle and meet uh, and potentially, you know, have have um, sex with people of a different race, they could meet in these bars, you know, they would see sort of underground bars in Chicago. And, and the, the vice district, which was called the Levy, was well known for that. Well, as black people began to move up, they were forced to move into this area near the Levy. And all, all of a sudden, all of this anxiety began to arise that, okay, what happens if black people begin to utilize this kind of underground uh, underground interracial sex scene, right? You know, we can't, you know, we as, you know, um, you know, up, upstanding uh, white citizenry can't allow for that. So the Levy was, was shut down effectively. And, and what happened is that the, the, the under the vice, particularly that interracial vice and some of the some of the other sex work, migrated into the adjacent black belt, and you know this begins to cause all kinds of problems, right? But in, but what's important to keep in mind is that before black people moved up to the moved up to the the black belt, that place adjacent to the V. Everything was fine in terms of of uh, the 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 vice and the levy, like nobody really cared, and actually it was kind of celebrated. Uh, you know, it was well known that you know this is what the levy is about. But once black people moved in, then there was this anxiety, right? This fear, and this anxiety and fear is informed by these discourses that followed them, right? That these people are criminals, that they're violent, that they're sexually rapacious, and uh, and uh, perverse, and we can't allow for we as you know you know uh, Chicagoans, white citizens, we can't allow for those things to happen. So as a result of that, the Levy was uh, was shut down, or the, the words of the officer that really helped to, to shut it down, the Levy was cleaned up, and the vice was driven underground. And when it was driven underground, it was driven into the black community. And once it moved into the black community, the police then began to see not only uh, not only black people as 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 a group that needed to be contained and, and policed, but also that there was something about black space, about black geographies that was repugnant and criminal uh, and rapacious, and so that it needed to be contained and policed. So then the police move into the black belt and in an effort to clean up the uh, the you know clean up the vice in the black belt, so you know there's um, there's you know police modernize the police force gets bigger all these tactics and techniques of finding Johns and stamping out vice emerge and once the police move into the black belt in the early part of the 20th century to stamp out vice they effectively never leave. And there's this ever-present, constant interaction between black community and police. And, and in Chicago, at least, 
it's here where we begin to see the emergence of the tension that produces the Laquan McDonald that we see in 2016. Right? And there's, there's, a, there's an absolute correlation between the creation of black space through the foreclosing of housing and access to uh, the foreclosing of housing in other parts of the city, the policing of those places that are now seen as criminal because of the people that live there, the explosion of mass incarceration that happens as a result of the creation of those places in the 1970s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, and then the continued, um, and then the most recent uh, video images of black men being killed, right? And they are, um, and many of them, uh, not all of them, but many of them are in historically black communities such as Ferguson or the south side of Chicago or Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, when people, uh, when a lot of people think about incarceration, they're envisioning brick and mortar prisons, you know, the obvious um, places where people are incarcerated in prisons. But when you refer to the carceral power exercised on the South side a generation ago, it's, it's basically the entire landscape that, that is, is prisonized or, or sort of turned into a prison outside of a prison. Um, um, could you elaborate a little bit on that and, and how that um, how that affects, I guess, how blacks are treated in those in in places like South Side of Chicago? Yeah. So, in order to, you know, for closing off the housing market was one way to keep to to spatialize black people. You know, they're going to be here. You close off all of this housing, and you only allow this to be a space for housing, that's where they have to go. Uh, but what we begin to see is the encroachment of these things um, that, that, are, that are called, you know, carceral techniques or carceral power. And basically, those are the techniques and tactics that make prison possible. You know, prisons exist through things like surveillance, policing, enclosure, you know, walls, and that's how that's how they work. You know, you put walls up, you put mechanisms of surveillance. Uh, you have uh, you have constant policing in terms of guards walking up and down the tiers. You know, this is how the the exercise of policing of of incarceration functions. Well, what what I began to discover, um, and and this is really from reading um, the 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 words of former prisoners, you know, people like Nelson Mandela, uh, Angela Davis, uh, among others, is that the function, the way some black communities function, particularly poor um, urban black communities in places like Chicago, the way some of those communities function uh, and the way prison functions, um, there was overlap. And so what I began to do as a, as a researcher and as a geographer is to investigate, you know, what this overlap meant. And I was really horrified by what I discovered, that, you know, not only were they forced to live in a certain place because of housing restrictions, but they were also um, excessively policed, and that that policing uh, was just sort of ever-present. And then also the, the kinds of housing that they, they lived in, small cramped housing during the early part of the 20th century, um, you know, that was very kind of cell-like, if you will. So what, what I began to discover is that, you know, carceral power or those techniques and tactics that make incarceration possible 
can be placed in any landscape. You know, you don't need a you don't need a downstate or upstate prison. You know, they can be it can be done in any landscape. All you need is this the tactics and the techniques. And those things were deployed upon black space, you know, really dating back from the early part of the twentieth century and, you know, even you know, even longer in, in some contexts, you know, just sort of thinking about the reality of transatlantic slavery and the plantation and so on and so forth, you know, these kinds of mechanisms of containment and surveillance uh, that were used uh, in the Middle Passage and the South and on. But in terms of Chicago, uh, yes, parts of the landscape were effectively prisonized, right? And then when you create housing projects that were only built in black space all over the nation after World War II, you know, none of these housing projects were built in uh, multiracial or white communities, uh, they were only built in black communities. And in Chicago, you know, these housing projects, which, which really were, uh, which really were a, a kind of godsend to people who were living in this awful kitchenette housing, which was dilapidated and cramped and, uh, you know, overall just really bad housing, they, they move into these bigger, newer, uh, cheaper places. But as the economy shifted and these, you know, these working class industrialites that were that had moved into these projects in the late nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties, um, as poverty began to grow because of the shift in the economy from a uh from an industrial to a deindustrial economy and all these people are thrown out of work, instability ensues, right? And and that instability uh produced poverty and that poverty produced forms of, of crime within the context of those housing projects. And the city of Chicago, with the backing of the federal government, dealt with the crime by closing it in. So they did things like they, they uh, I write about this one housing project, the Robert Taylor Homes. They did things like uh, they put turnstiles on the, the doors. They put up bulletproof vests. They put up uh, bulletproof glass in the lobby. They put in surveillance cameras. They, they beefed up policing. They put cages around the buildings, right? So what we begin to see is the encroachment of these things, these carceral techniques, right, that, that we all know and have seen from, you know, jails and prisons, from, you know, movies or, or if we've been to one, right? Those things migrate upon the, the very landscape of the projects and the broader landscape of uh, parts of the, of the south side of Chicago. And so... You know, spatializing blackness, you know, looks at the consequences of that. You know, what happens when people grow up in places for containment, right? What, what, what conditions of possibility do they have? How does it affect their health? How does it, does it affect their economic mobility, their schooling, their sense of identity, right? And, and, and you know, what we see in Chicago is that these things have significant negative implications. Yeah. So, I mean, like, for example, I, I know, like, having security forces, uh, police raids on the homes, um, curfews, metal detectors, on-site courts, perimeter patrols, video surveillance, all these um, sort of um, control techniques or mechanisms are part of daily life in, the, in, in some of those housing projects. And how much um, did those measures prevent violence or how much did they actually increase its likelihood? Well, what they did is they they never um, decreased 
uh, crime. You know, crime continued. You know, where where there's poverty, there's crime. You know, we know this from everywhere in the globe. When there's when there's poor people, there's there's crime. There's an instability. So these things didn't make people safer. What one of the things they did do is they produced a sense of isolation and containment among the population, right? And they be, parts of the population began to feel as if they were caged, that they, they could not move, that their conditions of possibility and their, their physical mobility truncated, uh, that they were prisoners, right? And because they were being treated as such, particularly among um, young men, right? not exclusively, but particularly young, among young men, they began to act the part that they were being treated as, right? So if they were being treated as prisoners, they would, they would act as prisoners, right? And this is, this is where um, that relationship between the geographies that we inhabit and our conditions of possibility is very important. You know, when you live in a place that is where you, where you have mobility, where you have a sense of stability, where you have access to things like quality food and uh, recreation, right? Your sense of self is fundamentally different, right? You know, you're, it, it, you, you, are, you, you have the possibility of being, you know, the best kind of human being you can be. But when you're in a place that is, um, is impoverished and, and you don't have mobility, whether social, economic, or physical, um, and, and you're being treated through the environment as a prisoner, um, it's going to also impact your conditions of possibility, what you think you can do, you know, what, what you think you can be. And so what we began to see is that uh, it didn't produce, what it did is it created even more instability among the population. And so much so that uh, those projects were torn down in 2007 because, you know, the more, the more uh, forms of securitization that were thrust upon the project created even more instability, right? Police raids didn't make people feel safe. It made, it made you know, many people feel terrorized. Surveillance cameras didn't make people feel safe. It made them feel as if they were being watched. And, you know, all of the programs that were deployed upon there did not work, right? And they, and they did the precise opposite of what they, they were intended to do. So, so I think it, it, it not only illustrates the, the sort of encroachment of these kind of prisonized mechanisms upon um, the geographies that black people inhabit, but it also says to us that, you know, more prisons and bars and cages and police and surveillance equipment, those things don't produce safety. They, they can produce, as in the case of Chicago, they, produce, they can produce the precise opposite, which is forms of instability, which is a feeling of being contained and treated as a prisoner. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, you know, I, I think that's, um, that's a good insight and something that it, it, it's funny that I, I don't know whether by design or, or ignorance of the planners should have figured out maybe what had happened. Um, but I guess maybe if they were just trying to separate people, maybe they didn't care that much what happened. But, um, and I know um, you, you mentioned mobility. So I, I think uh, another thing that struck me is that I know early on or previously the, the Chicago Transit Authority had been re- 
reliable, provided reliable service across the city, but they curtailed service to the Woodlawn neighborhood after it became predominantly black in the mid-1950s. Um, what ramifications did that isolation have on people in the community? Yeah, this was a this was a deeply problematic uh, move by the Chicago Transit Authority. So, you know, by the by the late 1950s, early 60s, Woodlawn had become a mostly black community. And again, because of housing restrictions, not only was it a black community, but it was a packed black black community. It was there was there was too many people and not enough housing. And and you know, because we are talking about, you know, really first-generation immigrants, you know, working-class people, um, they did not have access to cars, and they relied upon the bus system in places. And so as the, when, the, when the city became, when that neighborhood became largely black and the, the transit authority curtailed their service, it made it difficult, if not impossible, for many black people to get to work. So the economic... Um, the, the economic immobility that had already been surfacing in that community got worse because now you have people who, who, who it's difficult to get to work um, and they, they will lose their job as a result of that. And also there was a business district in Woodlawn, you know, where there were shops and things. And because it was difficult to get in and out, those businesses dried up eventually. So it, it had a devastating effect on the, the economic vitality of the entire community, you know, sunk the tax base. And we know that the tax base has a corresponding relationship to school funding. Right? So all of a sudden, you know, you go from schools that are, you know, fairly well funded, that are fairly decent schools, to now being underfunded and understaffed and under-equipped. You know, it had a, it had a ripple effect, right? And And this is you know, this is the importance of, you know, transportation, of people being able to physically move around. But because of the spatialization and the containment that black people uh, on Chicago's south side, particularly in the black belt, were subject to, it, it increased their poverty, it increased their access to uh, good foods and uh, better schools, and, and it effectively... Um, undermine their conditions of possibility and the longevity of their lives. And um, another area, too, that I think is um, interesting, I, I guess, it, another sort of how geography and social conditions um, overlap and in ways that maybe people wouldn't necessarily be aware of. I know the the spread of HIV-AIDS in, in 1980s Chicago followed a course that had been mapped out over a century, century earlier by a London doctor hoping to understand the spread of cholera in Chicago in the 19th century. And how is that map, which I guess was John Snow's ghost map, uh, a really hauntingly accurate overlay for the, a modern disease whose transmission was as much economic and social as it was Epidemiological. Yes, that's a that's a fantastic question. So you know, John Snow, uh, and you know, I guess a, a shout out to all the Game of Thrones fans out there. Your same name as the, the John Snow from the television show. Yeah, John Snow is really considered the father of modern epidemiology. And what he discovered in the 19th century is that 
there was a um, there was an outbreak of cholera, and he mapped the deaths of of the people who were dying from cholera, and the people who were largely dying from cholera were poor people. Uh, many of them were immigrants, and the he was he was able to u- utilize um, death records. Uh, and they were, they, you know, they weren't the greatest records, but he was able to sc- scrape together death records to find out that the people who were dying were pretty much in one place. Uh, it was the Golden Square community. And actually today there is in the Golden Square uh, neighborhood of London, there's a, there's a bar called, you know, John Snow's. And there's the, uh, the, the infamous pump. Um, and people were getting their water from this pump. And that pump was pumping in water that was being dumped, that, that was um, filled with sewage that was being dumped out from, from various businesses. So, you know, they were, they were drinking sewage water, and that sewage water made them sick, and it, it killed many people in that neighborhood. Um, and so Jon Snow discovered that it was the water. You know, people thought it was, like, in the air. People thought it was, like, uh, you know, sneezing. And, you know, he, he knew it was something, you know, he, he knew it was a very direct source. So... So what I did is I, I wanted to sort of map something very similar. So in in, in the state of Illinois, um, there's there's roughly about ninety thousand prisoners, and every year about thirty thousand of those prisoners, almost a third of those prisoners, are released through things like the end of their sentence, or you know time off, or probation, or parole, or what have you, um, and roughly 60% of those prisoners go back to a handful of zip codes on the south and west side, which is where the majority of the state's black population lives. And why this is important is that as HIV began to explode in the early 1980s, um, there's research that demonstrates that it was moving around prisons in New York and in Philadelphia and in Florida in the 70s. You know, well, well, long before, you know, the it, it reached sort of a, a popular consciousness with the death of movie stars like Rock Hudson um, and, and well-known people like Ryan White, it was moving around jails and prisons. And so that, that movement of lots of prisoners from a handful of black communities on the south and west side of Chicago to prison um, is important because for two reasons. One, we have sexual relationships with people that are close to us. We don't go far for sex. And this is really across the country. You know, it's like, it's, it's who's near, you know, despite the fact that we have, you know, all these apps and dating sites that can link us up with people around the globe, we still sleep with and date people that are close to us physically. And this is the case in terms of, you know, black people, uh, as, as well as whites, but blacks in Chicago, they were sleeping with, you know, black people in their communities. And so as, as, those, as people from those communities began to move from the south of the west side of Chicago to a downstate prison, right, and if they had, um, if they encountered the disease in the community or in the prison, they were bringing it back and forth as they moved around. And because the overwhelming majority of the state's prisoners came from just a handful of places, right, just a handful of places, that made the trans 
the transportation of that disease from jails and prisons to black communities extremely effective, right? And then we have to also remember they are only sleeping with people in their their communities. So, you know, HIV is a, commu- is a disease that's communicable by um, human fluids, you know, blood, semen specifically, right? And those things can be transmitted during sex, but they can also be transmitted uh, through um, sharing needles. And when people across the nation, when they go into jails and prisons, they are not tested for HIV. You know, they're, they're not, and, and once you're inside, you're not given access to condoms. You're not given access to clean needles, you know, if, and it's very easy to get drugs in prisons all across the nation, federal prisons, state prisons, even in the hole, which is a prison inside a prison, people, people get access to those drugs. So what we began to see is, is that throughout the 1980s and 90s, that as the black populations, as the black communities incarceration numbers grew, so did the rates of HIV. And they grew in the very communities that were the primary places where the state's prisoners were mined. And this is a national uh, epidemic. We see it in southern rural black counties. We see it in northern um, urban counties. We see it in the east. We see it in the south. We see it in the midwest. And we see it in the West, right? And and the main reason is because, again, there's a direct migration from that community to those prisons. There's, there's no testing upon entering or exiting. There's no access to clean needles. There's no access to things to clean needles with. There's no access to uh, really any kind of productive drug treatment. There's no access to condoms. So transmitting the disease, if you come in, you know, positive, no one knows. And people in prison also have sex, right? So, so what we began to see is this sort of migration of HIV between these two communities, and mass incarceration facilitates it largely through the booking up of the, the sort of prison state through the through the drug war, because the drug war is really what begins to drive tens of thousands of people into prisons from the 1970s all the way up into the 1990s, you know, more drug arrests, you know, fighting drugs, you know, all of that discourse that we heard throughout the 80s and 90s, right? And so the drug war gets used as a mechanism to, you know, go out and um, arrest. But what was also being moved around as those bodies were being moved around was disease. And you can also add things like hepatitis to that list as well. But HIV, uh, it was deadly. You know, it was, it was lethal, and it began to spread in those communities, right? And it particularly affected uh, black women, and it still continues to affect black women. And it's one of the reasons today that um, the, the face of HIV in this country is the face of, of black women. They account for nearly 50% of all cases, new cases of HIV uh, around, around the country. Yeah, um... And yeah, it's very um, tragic, but also um, very interesting how that happened. Or, or it's, um, you know, the correlation there is, I mean, it's easy to see how it kind of transmitted and got spe- spread through that community um, because of the concentration of, well, because of the housing segregation and because of the the uh, the incarceration efforts of 
of policing those communities and putting disproportionate numbers of of black people in jail and then having them go back out or into prison and going back out into the same communities. Um, I know, so your book, Spatializing Blackness, um, in many ways you suggest, and I think accurately so, that it provides the backstory to today's Black Matter movement. Um, could you explain how so and, and you know, um, how that relates? Well, one of the things that Black Lives Matter is trying to do is they're trying to call attention to the specific social problems that black communities are faced with. You know, the whole discourse of all lives matter is such a distraction and it's so offensive. Oh, right? Everybody sure. knows yeah. all, you know, you know, it's just like everybody knows all lives matter. You know, and to say that black lives matter does not mean that Asian American lives don't matter. To say that black lives matter doesn't mean that Latina lives don't matter. It doesn't mean that white lives don't matter. What it means is that black people are facing a very specific set of problems that need attention, not only from black people, but through the entire nation. And so in doing that, um, what the book does is it really provides a kind of backstory to, to the social inequalities uh, uh, that Black Lives Matter is, uh, is, is grappling with, right? You know, Black Lives Matter emerges as a result of police violence on black people, right? It emerges as a, as a, as a response to mass incarceration, right, which are, which are two specific problems that are having significant negative impact on black communities. It's ripping apart families. It's undermining social stability. It's undermining um, uh, financial stability. Right? It's it's forcing it's uh, forcing families to be you know torn apart. So so what spatializing blackness does is it illustrates how those black communities were were created. What were the discourses that went into the creation of them? Why they were created? Why they were so heavily policed? And why? And, and how police violence and mass incarceration grew out of that, right? So spatializing blackness is, is, is very much um, a kind of backstory, if you will, to Black Lives Matter. And it's also a way for us to, to begin to think about what needs to be done to undo the decades and decades and decades of inequality, right, that for me as a geographer are really grounded in geography, in space. You know, space is not a problem in and of itself. It's not a problem to have black communities. I grew up in a black community. They're beautiful and they're, uh, and they're engaging, they're interesting, right? So I don't want to see the elimination of black space. I do want to see more multiracial space, like that is absolutely necessary, right? That is absolutely necessary. But I don't want to see the elimination of black space. What I want to see is that I want to see um, black communities being given access to those things that other communities, particularly white communities, have had to create stability, right, which is decent housing, decent act, good act, access to food and public transportation and recreation, Right. Those things right there, right, which 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 we all know are fundamental 
to living quality lives, housing, food, education, and recreation, right? Those things are fundamental to, to living quality lives. Black communities need that. And just because many black communities are poor and working class doesn't mean they don't deserve it, right? They deserve to have their children be able to go to a grocery store and get fresh fruits and vegetables. They deserve to have their children attend schools that are fully functional and well-staffed. They deserve to have their children walk down streets that are safe, right? And, and, and the, the sort of belief that um, black people don't deserve it, right, or somehow we asked for uh, – you know the some of the, con- the conditions that we have in our communities um is 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 uh, is offensive and and so we collectively have to begin to address the the um the the reality that black people face because black people's destiny and the nation's destiny are linked you know black people cannot continue to suffer forms of injustice and violence and this nation not and, and, and can't continue to, to, to suffer violence and injustice and this nation not continue to be healthy, right? The health of this nation is dependent upon black suffering and black violence coming to an end, right? We, you know, despite the fact that we are deeply segregated through housing and other, other forms, you know, there's, there's a report I read just a year ago. 85% of white people have entirely white social networks, 85%. You know, I mean, just, just, just marinate on that for a moment. That, that effectively means that the overwhelming majority of white people have no clue about the lives of people of color, zero. They have no personal relationships with them. They have no physical relationships with them. They don't go to schools with them. They mostly work in white, you know, white establishments. Right, so, so, so again, you know, I, I, multiracial space is important, but if we are to address the problems that face black communities today, then we are going to have to grapple with these long-standing ways, long-standing mechanisms that have undermined and created insecurity. Uh, and immobility in black communities across the country. And I think that's one of the things that Black Lives Matter is trying to do. Absolutely. And I I think, um, and obviously I I think your book um, brings a lot of the history and geography and sociology to place that, that, um, you know, contextualizes the Black Lives Matter movement. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the people that, probably should need to read it or ought to read it, won't, but there will be people that do that should as well. I, I think, you know, even white scholars, I think many times that are sort of um, in largely white social networks. And so, I mean, it would be helpful, I think, for them to um, not only read this, but hopefully um, be in, in conversations with people beyond beyond sort of their own social networks or beyond just talking to African Americans in academia and, and and things like that, but um, yeah. uh, I think it's all very fascinating and very important stuff. And obviously, with what's happening in the country uh, today, I think critical stuff that this nation gets a handle on. On, well, I mean that they understand it and start to 
address some of these issues and making, um, you know, not uh, sort of criminalizing people based on race or, or um, spatial, spatially segregating people. And I know things like um, putting people in communities where there's, uh, you know, food deserts where they don't have access to mm -hmm. decent food or they don't have access to decent education, things like that, and where, where the police serve more as an occupying army than as protectors. I mean, those kind of things need to be changed. But with the last um, two or three minutes we have left, um, did you want to share with our listeners um, places maybe where they can follow you online or where they can get more information and also where they can order the book? Yes, so uh, you can order the book from the University of Illinois' website. You can also get it on Amazon. Um, I am on, uh, I'm at Twitter. I'm on Twitter uh, at Rashad Shabazz, and I'm also uh, on Facebook at uh, Rashad Shabazz. Yeah, very good. So, And we'll put up a link on our Liberal Six page to the book um, so that people can order it there or kind of see it there and things like that. But uh, once again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us today, and, and uh, I hope hope the listeners uh, learn something and uh, will use this as a call to action or, or at least a call to understanding, and, and I hope you have a great uh, weekend and keep up the good work, um, the good scholarly work and the things you do, and uh, thank you again for speaking with us. It was a real pleasure to be on the show. Um, you know, I hope your listeners uh, pick up a copy of the book or, you know, listen to uh, listen to the uh, the interview and find it interesting. Uh, and, um, and yes, I hope you have a, a good weekend as well. Thank you very much. And uh, to you. our listeners, I hope you again next week. Uh, and uh, everybody have a safe weekend, and uh, we'll see you uh, in a week. Thank you.